You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Collins Line Steamship Company, at the bottom of 12th Street next to the East River in New York, was busy. In fact, in 1850 alone, the company launched three luxury ships, the Arctic, the Baltic, and the Pacific. Owned by Edward Knight Collins, the company had set out to compete with English luxury ships. The Arctic and her sister ships were designed for speed and style. While Collins didn't have the capital necessary to build them himself, he had managed to convince the wealthy investment bank and trading firm Brown Brothers & Company to finance him. Collins also secured a government contract to carry mail and passengers between New York and Britain. The combination of luxury, speed, and business quickly earned the line the reputation of being the grandest transatlantic ships of their day. On September 13th of 1854, the Arctic docked in Liverpool, as it had done several times before, and the crew began preparations for the ship's return voyage. Several prominent passengers were about to embark including relatives of both the Collins and Brown families. Also joining the passengers was Captain James Luce's sickly son, Willie. The passengers and crew enjoyed a pleasant journey, until September 27th, when the ship encountered thick fog along the Grand Banks just off the Canadian coast. Captain Luce ordered lookouts to watch for other ships. The fog was so thick that the watchman didn't see the French steamer, the Vesta, until it was too late. Although the crew sent up an alarm, neither ship had time to avoid the collision. The Vesta's steel hull sliced into the Arctic's wooden framework. Captain Luce believed his ship could limp to the nearest port, and the Arctic and Vesta each continued on their path. Not long afterward, the luxury steamer began taking on water, and the crew panicked. Although there were laws forbidding crew from abandoning their passengers, not one of the Arctic's crewmen cried out, women and children first. It's a line captains and crews aboard sinking ships have shouted countless times. 
On the Titanic, the band played while women and children were loaded into the available lifeboats. Things were different on the Arctic. The ship had six lifeboats, capable of holding 180 people, but the crew had other ideas. They ignored the captain's shouts to properly load the lifeboats. In the chaos, the crew pushed through the line of waiting passengers. The men shoved away the women and children trying to get into the lifeboats. Even though they knew the passengers would die in the frigid water, the crewmen abandoned everyone on board and refused to help save the ship. When all the crew had climbed into the lifeboats, they launched away half-filled, leaving behind the passengers to fend for themselves. People desperately tried to string along rafts that might at least keep the children afloat. Among the 350 people who drowned were Edward Collins' wife and two children, and several members of the Brown family, including the president of the bank. Captain Luce managed to cling to a piece of the ship until rescued. He arrived in New York with a hero's welcome. Understandably, the rest of the crew received a much less favorable greeting. Outrage over the treatment of the passengers reached a fever pitch, prompting most of the crew to flee the state. Not one member of the crew was charged in any court of law, nor held accountable for their actions. Sometimes the horrors are too great, and we look the other way. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. In the early 1800s, while the rest of the world's economy sank into a downturn, the island of Nantucket, Massachusetts, was fast becoming one of the richest communities in America. Over 70 ships called its harbors home. They came and went through the seasons, bringing back sizable catches, enough to keep the town residents living in high style. Life hadn't always been easy or prosperous, though. In the 1600s, most of the colonists farmed or raised livestock. When more people arrived and land became scarce, the community turned to something less land-consuming and more profitable, whaling. They'd first come upon the idea after finding two beached sperm whales, which you or I might find tragic or a little gross, but at the time was a bit like stumbling across gold. Once they killed the creatures, they drained them of what's known as spermaceti, a waxy, odorless oil found in a large sack in the animal's head that had become very valuable due to its use in lanterns, cosmetics, and as a mechanical lubricant. Cape Cod native Ichabod Paddock was happy to teach Nantucketers everything he knew about whaling. And to make it safer and more profitable for the colonists, the method included enslaving the native Wampanoag people to dispatch the whales and tow them back to shore. From then on, captains and their crews slaughtered the whales that gathered at the Cape every fall. And by the 1700s, the whales' numbers dwindled. Undeterred, the men used bigger vessels and ventured further out to sea. Whales are smart. The ones that survived taught younger generations to avoid the vessels. They even changed their migratory patterns. It wasn't enough. The whalers hunted ruthlessly, endangering a few species' survival. With whales becoming scarce, Nantucketers built even bigger vessels manned by even larger crews to scour the seas. They traveled from the Arctic to the west coast of Africa, and from South America to the Falkland Islands in search of their prey. 
During the peak of whale season, 15 to 20 large ships and dozens of sloops and schooners dotted Nantucket's harbor. Labyrinths of anchors, tripods, spars, and oil casks filled the wharves. Sailors and artisans crowded the streets, and horse-drawn carts came and went constantly. Nantucket native Thomas Nickerson found the sights and sounds comforting. As a child, he had played on the docks and waterfront, clambering onto aging whale ships, shimmying along the ratlines and climbing the rigging. Now, with his childhood behind him, he was ready to go to sea. Nickerson wasn't the youngest. Some of the boys were just nine or ten years old when they'd first hunted whales. He was the youngest of the current crew, though, at 14 years of age. He had chosen to follow in his father's footsteps and become a whaler, instead of working in shops or businesses on the mainland. Leaving home was hard, but he wouldn't be alone. Nickerson would be joined by lifelong friends Barzillai Ray, Owen Coffin, and Charles Ramsdell, all aged between 15 and 18. And, like his friends and their families, Nickerson believed in Quakerism, which preached pacifism. While that may seem at odds with whaling, sea creatures aren't human, and the children were raised to believe the hunt was a noble and grand way of life. Their parents read them bedtime stories about killing whales, and the cannibals the brave soldiers evaded on remote tropical islands, a pervasive myth among European colonists about native peoples in the Americas. One mother proudly boasted that her nine-year-old son used a fork to harpoon the family cat. Like the whaling men, he shouted to the fleeing cat, Pay out, mother, pay out! There she sounds through the window! Men wore pins on their lapels to signify how many whales they'd slaughtered. The higher the number, the more suitable a husband they were considered. Their time at sea, often months or years at once, was worn like a badge of courage. While the men were gone, the women kept the town going. They raised the children and kept the house, inside and out. When the chores were done, they oversaw the island's business and kept the social calendar going. With the men at sea, Nantucket became a matriarchal society. But whaling had its costs. In 1810, there were 472 fatherless children on the island. One quarter of the women could expect to lose a husband to the sea. But none of this deterred Thomas and the others. The boys gathered on the dock in the late summer of 1819. The sea and the whales were waiting. They'd been raised their whole lives for this moment. They were ready to board the Essex for what the locals called a Nantucket sleigh ride. But, sadly, they would get so much more than that. The Essex, coming in at 87 feet and weighing 238 tons, wasn't particularly large for a whaling ship. And though she had brought in a steady profit, the 20-year-old ship had been mostly neglected for the past 15 years. Rot and naval shipworms had taken their toll on the wood. She also suffered from what sailors called iron sickness, the decay and corrosion of the iron on board. Though past her prime, the Essex had made her owners and many captains rich. The owners figured that the ship had one, maybe two more hunting trips in her before sending her to the scrapyard. Still, they made a few modest repairs before the journey. Locals noted that a comet appeared in the sky as the repairs began in July of 1819, and that a swarm of grasshoppers had invaded the turnip fields. The people of Nantucket were a suspicious bunch, if not slightly superstitious. 
And so when the Essex set out to sea in August, the community began to talk. Nothing good could come from these bad omens, certainly meant for the ship and crew. Unaware of the gossip, new Captain George Pollard felt confident. He had spent the past four years on the Essex as the first mate, and no one knew her better. Another long-timer, Owen Chase, had been promoted to first mate. At night, Nickerson and the others settled down on mattresses stuffed with mildewed corn husks. The night and the breeze were a welcome relief from the daytime's punishing heat. For two days, the seas were relatively smooth. A squall hit them on August 14th. Young Coffin assured Nickerson that all would be well, and Captain Pollard was also his cousin, and if anyone could navigate the Essex through a storm, it was him. When the worst of the storm had passed, two of the four whaling boats that hung off the port side had been swept away. The spare boat on the stern had been crushed, leaving the crew with just two functioning boats. Several sails, including the top gallant, were torn, rendering them almost useless. Pollard wanted to turn back, but Chase disagreed, insisting that the ship was fine and they could find spare whaleboats once they reached Portugal. After some debate between the men, Pollard relented and they continued. At first, the captain and first mate took to lying to the crew, telling them that the winds prevented them from turning around. Only later did they tell them the truth. When the crew sailed into the Azores and archipelago off Portugal to resupply, they discovered that spare boats were hard to come by. After finding just one, the crew got back to business, hunting whales. A lookout spotted a pod of whales somewhere between Rio de Janeiro and Buenos Aires. Pollard ordered several men to set out on two of the remaining boats. The men complied, racing to reach the pod first for bragging rights. Nickerson was on first mate Chase's boat, and they reached the whales first. A novice harpooner fumbled and didn't quite manage to secure one of the whales. As Chase barked more orders, a whale came up from under them. The whale rammed the boat, splintering it to bits and tossing the men into the sea. Nickerson treaded water among the swimming whales, terrified they'd attack. Instead, the whale swam off. Pollard swung his boat around and rescued the men. It would be days before they spotted the pod again. This time, the harpoon found its mark. The men cheered and called out as they embarked on their first Nantucket sleigh ride. The goal was to tire out the harpooned whale, allowing them to get close enough to stab it, and then slash the tendons and tail before running a lance into its lungs. A brutal death. Nightfall approached by the time the men towed the whale back to the Essex, butchered it, and drained the oil. Then, they celebrated. In November, the crew spotted a large male sperm whale heading straight toward the Essex. It rammed them, the impact tossing the men off their feet and tearing a hole into the ship. As the crew tried to stop the water from pouring in, the whale rammed the ship once more. While the Essex took on water, terrified men loaded themselves and their supplies into the remaining boats. They were miles from land, and somewhere beneath them was a very large and very angry whale. Their lifeboats leaked. In a matter of days, the salt water dampened the biscuits and endangered the rest of the food as well. Captain Pollard wanted to head to the nearest landfall, islands near Tahiti, about 30 days away. First mate Chase disagreed. He argued that everyone knew the island had cannibals who would surely eat them, 
Instead, he insisted they head to South America. The captain relented control to his first mate once more. Pollard and Chase each had navigational equipment in their boats, and crewman Matthew Joy followed in the third. Nickerson began to realize their odds of survival after they'd been rowing for nearly a month. Everyone was dehydrated and starving by the time they reached Henderson, a small inlet with nothing on it except seabirds, shellfish, and brackish water. A few days later, they'd eaten most of the seabirds. Pollard and Chase ordered everyone back into the boats. Three of the men refused, opting to take a chance a passing ship would spot them. With limited food, the others agreed. They took some of the birds and fish they'd caught and set off again toward South America. As the days dragged on, the hot sun and lack of water took their toll. Men began to die. To lighten the boats, their bodies were tossed overboard. For a month, the men drifted and rowed, still hopeful they'd make it to Easter Island. They knew nothing of the inhabitants. If it had cannibals, no one had heard about it. And at this point, they didn't care. On January 3rd of 1820, squalls pushed the boats further away from the island. The men had finished the last of their food. They had one saving grace. The storm had supplied them with water, enough that each man could have one cup per day. On January 4th, Matthew Joy died, and the men buried him at sea. Chase ordered a man named Hendricks to take over Joy's boat. Days later, a dense fog rolled in, and by morning, Chase had lost track of the other boats. After a search, he decided to continue their course and hope for the best. One night, Chase forgot to lock the supply chest, and one of the men stole extra food. He threatened to kill the man if he stole another bite. The next night, the exhausted men awakened to something huge hitting the boat. They watched as a shark circled. Normally, such an encounter would have sparked fear, especially given what the whale had done. But the men were hungry. Very hungry. Chase grabbed the harpoon. If he could kill the shark, they'd have food. He tried a few times as the shark continued to circle, but was too weak to penetrate the animal's skin. After several more jabs and one last lap, the shark swam off. The next day, another man on his boat died. Chase had run out of hope and options. Far away, Pollard and his men suffered the same fate. Without supplies, he and his men could do nothing to save themselves. Well, almost nothing. You see, even miles apart, the two men came to the same conclusion. Stop throwing the bodies overboard. And, for the first time in far too long, the survivors ate. Then they waited for land, and for the next crewmate to die. On February 16th of 1821, Pollard's men were on the brink. Their supplies were gone, and no one had died in three weeks. They decided to draw straws. Whoever lost would sacrifice themselves to feed the others. To Pollard's horror, his cousin Owen Coffin lost. Another draw of straws decided the Coffin's best friend would be the one to pull the trigger. With the deed done, the men didn't waste a single moment. Seventeen days later, Pollard and Ramsdell cleaned the marrow from the bones of their last murdered crewman when an American ship the dolphin came across them. 
300 miles away, Chase, Nickerson, and another crew member managed to catch the attention of an English ship. The men who stayed behind on the small inlet survived on birds, eggs, and shellfish for another month before an Australian ship rescued them. The third boat was later found with just three skeletons on board. The eight survivors were reunited in Valparaiso. After they recovered, they boarded a ship again, headed home to Nantucket. But they would never be the same. During the trip home, Pollard joined the captain for dinner. Throughout the meal, he recounted his harrowing ordeal. The captain returned to his room and wrote everything down, noting it had been the most distressing story he'd ever heard. The crew arrived home without fanfare or mention. No one wanted to talk about what the men had had to do to survive. No one, that is, except Pollard's family. They rejected him for having eaten his cousin. Coffin's mother refused to be in the same room with him. He briefly served as the captain of another whaling ship, the Two Brothers, but after it sank in 1823, no shipping company would hire him and no crew would work with him. Meanwhile, Chase wrote and published a book about those dark months at sea. He included every gory, horrifying detail. For a while, the book's sales helped support his family. Years later, Chase's son William followed in his footsteps and became a whaler too. While the story had become legend, existing copies of the book were rare. On one of his trips, William Chase met another whaler of the same age who wasn't from Nantucket. Though the story had traveled far and wide, his new friend wanted to hear all the details. The more the young crewman learned, the more intrigued and fascinated he became. When the two worked together on a whaling ship headed to the Pacific, he was delighted that Chase gave him a copy of his father's book. The curious crewman eagerly read it, cover to cover. The story stayed with him for some time before he wrote and published a work of fiction based on these true events. It took him 18 months to write. When the novel debuted, the young whaler-turned-author visited Nantucket for the first time. The island was in its heyday. It had become the whaling capital of the world. Before he left, he got the chance to meet with Captain Pollard. It was just once, but the novelist remembered the captain as one of the most humble and unassuming men he'd ever met. To Herman Melville, Pollard was nothing like his character, Captain Ahab. Moby Dick wasn't an instant success. By the time Melville died, the book was out of print. It took a hundred years before William Faulkner commented that he wished he'd written it himself. After a slow beginning, that opening line of Call Me Ishmael quickly became one of the most memorable phrases in literature. And with it, Moby Dick became one of the most famous stories of the sea ever told. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The archaeologists met the 14-year-old girl in 2012. They'd been working on the Jamestown Rediscovery Project at Preservation Virginia when they came across her skeleton. Jane, as they called her, was found in a cellar along with the remains of butchered animals, all bearing marks on their bones from human teeth. Young Jane had been eaten. As history has it, the colony had started as a promising endeavor— In 1606, the Virginia Company, which hoped to find gold and silver, sponsored its creation. England hoped the riches they'd find would help them become the world power, taking the title from Spain. Three ships left England in December of 1606. The Susan Constant, the Discovery, and the Godspeed. Aboard were 104 colonists, including former mercenary Captain John Smith. It took the ships four months to make the journey stopping at three ports before arriving in America on April 26th of 1607. They named the area Cape Henry, and the expedition crew immediately set out to find a more suitable place to establish a colony. They explored an area around what's now called Chesapeake Bay, and came upon a river they named the James River in honor of King James I. In mid-May of 1607, they selected a peninsula in the middle of the James River, The strip of land, 40 miles inland from the Atlantic, was a solid choice for a fortress. The curve in the river made the area easily defensible, and the channel provided easy access to supply and trading ships. They also chose the land due to the lack of indigenous peoples there. Native Americans considered the land a poor choice for either agriculture or comfort. It was marshy, plagued by mosquitoes, and the brackish water wasn't suitable for drinking. The colonists had arrived during a drought. They didn't understand the marsh as a problem. And they didn't find the site's isolation and small size as problematic as the Native Americans had. However, they did learn that mosquitoes were abundant and drinking water scarce. Plus, growing crops in a drought proved more difficult than they anticipated. They'd arrived too late in the year for a successful harvest, and were unaware of the amount of labor it took to establish a fort. During the first nine months, all but 38 colonists died from either starvation or disease. 
The Powhatan people brought food to the colonists of Jamestown, and often traded with the colony for items brought in on supply ships. But the relationship began to sour when the terms of the trade changed and the colonists became increasingly hostile. The Powhatans stopped trading and sending food. Without their help and without the proper land to grow crops and raise livestock, starvation set in once more. The colonists called 1609 to 1610 the starvation time. The Virginia Company sent another nine ships with food and additional supplies, but a hurricane struck the fleet and they never arrived. The company sent more ships. These carried 300 new colonists, but very few supplies. Captain Smith returned to England after an injury, leaving George Percy in charge. This new council president was left with a problem. Either the colonists venture away from the fort and onto Powhatan territory to gather food, or starve. Percy chose to ration supplies. Some of the colonists chose to hunt on Powhatan land and were killed or taken hostage. Greatly outnumbered, the colonists turned to every animal within the fort as food. When not even a mouse was left, they ate shoe leather. It didn't take much longer for them to turn to cannibalism. When Percy's letters were found, anthropologists learned that they began with the recently deceased, then moved on to digging up graves, and eventually murder. In the case of Jane, the analysis indicated her flesh had been stripped from her bones. Her skull had even been cracked open to access her brain. When the ship, the Sea Venture, arrived at the fort in May of 1610, crewmen were met with a horrifying sight. The captain realized that the supplies he had brought wouldn't be enough to sustain the colony and made the decision to return to England with the survivors. Governor Lord Delaware blocked their entry and ordered them to return to Jamestown and rebuild. This time, with the help of the Algonquin peoples, the colonists learned how to survive in the new land and produced decent enough crops to sustain themselves in 1611. Eventually, the colonists abandoned the settlement, choosing instead to relocate to Williamsburg, where, of course, they thrived, putting their dark past behind them. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary, stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.